Thank you. So Jeremiah 30 verse 7, Alas, for that day is great, so that there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. We just read it in uh, Matthew. Jesus said if he hadn't shortened the time, the elect wouldn't have been saved. And this will be the time of the final ingathering of the nation of Israel when they look on him whom they have pierced and mourn as for their firstborn son. You find that scripture in Zechariah 12 verse 10. Their refusal to accept Jesus as Messiah led to their being dispersed among all the nations. The fifth cycle of discipline that we looked at already or referred to in Leviticus 26.33. Actually it might be worth going to that. Have a look in Leviticus 26.33. I love the way that the Bible is its own com commentary. It's all in here. God's not left anything to chance. Verse 32 says, I will bring the land to desolation and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. Verse 33, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. The Jews were completely dispossessed of Israel because they never did what they were told to do, which was to go in and conquer. We are to go in and conquer. We are, to, we are conquerors. We must move in and conquer. That's what next week's um, passing the baton... Um, no, it's not passing the baton. Going, that's it. <laughs> school, summer school's all about. Uh, getting in there, doing it. Yes, yes. Uh, yes, it will be a time of a tremendous uh, time to be able to wait on God, to see what he's saying, to bring ourselves into alignment. It's going to be really moving into the holy place and hearing from him and getting some discipline in our lives so that we, we do get still and listen because Satan's got a lovely one, hasn't he, to get you busy. Busy, 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 busy. Uh, so this will be the time prophesied in Isaiah of the great restoration of Israel as God's own nation. So it looks like Israel has a future, a people for himself, and all eyes will again be upon Jerusalem. And secondly, humanity's cup of iniquity is filled to overflowing. Do you remember I said that God doesn't judge until the cup is full? And he will bring judgment on the earth for the rejection of his son. By the time the great, of the great tribulation, the cup of evil will be full to such an extent that his judgment must be poured out. While this will be a time of tremendous harvest, it will also be a time of unparalleled rebellion towards God. And it is a principle that God never judges until the cup of iniquity is full. If you'd like to see that, flip quickly to Genesis 15:16. Genesis is the seedbed of the Bible and invariably you will find yourself coming back to this if you really want to find... There is the law of first mention, which we don't hear about much these days, but it's the law of where the thing was first mentioned in the Bible. And people have said to me, oh, God only mentioned it once. So that means we don't have to do it, does it? That was what they were saying. I think that was someone who was contesting the fact that we were tripartite beings, body, soul and spirit. And I just cited the scripture in Thessalonians 
oh well you know if that's the only one I thought it's a whole teaching poppet we won't worry to go there now but you know it's man's rebellion our rebellion against what God's word clearly says if it doesn't line up with what we want it to say never mind eh um, Genesis 15:16. now he's talking to Abraham um, he's giving him a prophetic word verse 13 know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs Egypt and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years and also the nation whom they serve I will judge afterwards they shall come out with great possessions they did too didn't they stuffed full of the, the goods they couldn't wait to get rid of them in the end now as for you you go to your fathers in peace and be buried in a good old age but in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete God uses one nation to punish another and that is the way he goes he uses Satan to test and to purify his bride Satan thinks he's doing his thing but he isn't he's under God's complete control he's an agent for the Lord and he doesn't even realize it he's such a megalomaniac he thinks he's doing it all every time he comes against us he makes us stronger June had a battle this morning because she was really unwell in here really unwell fine now we just prayed and we did some declaring in here and, and you guys prayed for her she's fine that's spiritual warfare it's not waving a sword about and binding the principalities and powers it's lower down than that <laughs> it's, it's right on our level so humanity's cup will be full uh, and mankind is given every opportunity but rebellion is bound up in their hearts so what of the church will it really go through this terrible time and throughout scripture there's a principle of safety for God's own people during times when his wrath is poured out. Noah was saved from the universal flood by going into the ark. Lot was saved from Sodom and Gomorrah when fire and brimstone rained down. And the church will be saved before God brings his judgment to bear on an unbelieving world. It's very interesting, I've always taught that the rapture is correct, but I got a brilliant confirmation one day when I hadn't known June that long. She was down in Honeysuckle, our little um, uh, summer house, um, and she suddenly came in and said, God just said to me, I need anything you've got on the rapture of the church, because my church is teaching error. I thought, that says to me, I'm teaching truth. I think it's just so lovely. There's a lot of teaching in the church that actually leads people into fear. Like you can lose your salvation. And they've got some good scriptures, but they don't refer to the church, they refer to the Jews. The ones they usually use. But anyway, it's an interesting thing. I don't blame them at all, but it does minister fear. I worked a little bit with the gypsy movement um, for a while and they really ruled their people with fear that they could lose their salvation that's not God <sighs> anyway there we are so be assured you cannot lose your salvation any more than you can change who you are you can change your sex change the color of your hair probably change the color of your eyes but your father is still your father and once you're born again your father is still your father can't get away from it and you begin to bear the likeness of a son 
So the catching away of the church will be a major sign to Israel in those days and it will result in them being an evangelistic nation. And you see that in Revelation 7 and the 144,000 witnesses and there we have the Jehovah's Witnesses. And Revelation 12, 11, these were the ones who loved not their lives to the death. So anyone who thinks that the church is to go through this horrendous time has no real understanding of what's going to happen. It is a time of trouble that has never been seen before it's so awful. The sun will be darkened and the earth will be removed from its orbit. I mean, can you imagine that spinning off into space? Terrifying. Now let's just have a look at the letters to the seven churches. Again, we get lots of um, opinions on this and I'm not saying what I'm going to say is final, but this is the way it's coming out for me. So, Revelation 2, 1 to 7. Ooh, we're doing well here. And to the angel or messenger of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience. You cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have, have patience, and have laboured for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, have another thought, and do the first works, works of faith. Or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. There we are, paradise regained. And what he's saying here. Uh, he who has an ear is Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohino, Adonai Echod. Do you remember? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. I love it. She taught me something else. Bashem, Baruch Hashem. That's it. Baruch Hashem. Yeah, Baruch Hashem Adonai. Hebrew, isn't it lovely? Isn't it lovely? It's something about it, isn't it? <gasps> Right. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men. You've tested those who are claimed to be apostles but aren't and found them false. Good, 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 good. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Ephesus had heart trouble. It had forsaken its first love, walked away, left it. I just don't love him anymore. Honeymoon love had eroded into routine married life. How many of us like that in the Christian walk? It's all thrills and spills and excitement in the first few years and then suddenly it goes into routine married life and we just get routine. The thrilling flush of the newfound conversion experience had evaporated in the pressure of normal life. Then there's the church at Smyrna. Uh, Revelation 2, 8 to 11. And to the messenger of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, 
And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and aren't, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. See who's doing it? And you will have tribulation ten days. Who's allowing it? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Smyrna was the persecuted iron curtain church. There was no condemnation for them, but commendation. They were pulled apart by pressure, poverty and persecution, but they were being encouraged to stand. Believers in Smyrna were afflicted by false teachers who claimed to be Jews, but they weren't. Any church that preaches a gospel other than the gospel of Jesus Christ is a synagogue of Satan, regardless of what it is called. And then we look at the church at Pergamum, Revelation 2, 12 to 17. And to the angel or messenger in Pergamus write, These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Satan is not everywhere, but he does have a throne in a place um, probably in the Middle East right now. And there you hold fast to my name, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Anti Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Shema Yisrael, here we go. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. One of the significations of the white stone is that when you were um, tried in the, under the Roman system, uh, the judge would have a white or a black stone in his hand to determine whether you were guilty or not guilty. So a white stone says you are not guilty. <laughs> That's just one of the things about a white stone. Brilliant. I've, in, in ministry sometimes I've had to just put a little white disc in someone's hand to signify not guilty. So the few things against this, repent therefore. This is where Satan had his throne. The city of Pergamon was deeply entrenched in the worship of the god Asclepius, the god of healing. This was a church that slid into compromise, the toleration of evil, worldly standards had crept in. The government provided money for the operation of the church and many pagan temples were taken over by the Christians. To please the emperor, the leaders adopted customs that were parallel to pagan practices. A lot of that in the church these days, pagan practices. One compromise invariably leads to another and what seemed at the start to be a great blessing ended up a great curse. During the succeeding three centuries of this period, many anti-Christian practices of pagan origin were adopted, which robbed the church of its fire and its evangelistic fervour. 
The influence of paganism on the church increased over the years, step by step, and the church began to shroud itself in mystery and ritualism that had a strong resemblance to Babylonian mysticism. And the name Pergamum literally means marriage or elevation. As the church became married to governmental authority and elevated to a place of acceptance, it declined in spiritual blessing and power. And Thyatira, 18 to 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants, to commit sexual immorality, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she didn't repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the mind and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. But to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they call them, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. He who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessels shall be broken to pieces, as I also have received from my Father, and will give him the morning star. He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she misleads his servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food offered to idols. Beneath the exterior of piety was a cesspit. That woman, Jezebel. Jezebel was the epitome of immorality and idolatry. And the program of merging paganism with Christianity begun under the church of Pergamon increased and the light that Jesus entrusted to his church all but flickered out during what was called the Dark Ages. And it was not rekindled until the days of the Reformation. Thyatira comes from two words, meaning sacrifice and continual. And this introduces a central heresy that has produced other false doctrines. That is the Church of Rome, which denies the finished work of Jesus on the cross, but believes in a continuing sacrifice. That's why you always see in a Catholic church, Jesus is on the cross. Because it's not finished. He's permanently there. It produces such things as sacraments for the dead and praying for the dead. All of these were borrowed from Babylon, the seedbed of all pagan customs and idolatry. Jesus gave this adulterous woman time to repent, but she refused. Not everyone was involved with her, and Jesus gives some marvellous promises to those who hold on to their faith till he returns. Then in Sardis, Revelation 3, 1 to 6. This is the reformed liberal church. It's also the dead church. 
I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Close on you like a trap, I think it says in Peter. Sardis means escaping ones or those who come out. They had become state churches and they had a tendency to please the government rather than please God. They did not sufficiently change many of the customs and teachings of the Church of Rome. The city of Sardis was wealthy but degenerate. Twice the city had nearly been lost because the leadership and citizenry were too lazy to defend themselves from their enemies. And like the city, this church had won a good reputation at one time and the members thought they'd arrived. They were content in the beautiful building they had erected on the corner of self-satisfaction and complacency streets. Cause of death rested on its laurels. Died from neglect, lax moral standards and a failure to recognise its own spiritual condition. They had a form of godliness but they denied the power. That's 2 Timothy 3.5. Philadelphia, Revelation 3.7-13. I know your works. This is verse 8. See, I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it. Don't we all want this? For you have little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lying, I'll make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I've loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which is to come upon the whole earth to test those that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. The church that Jesus loved. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, but you've kept my word and not denied my name. The church, the name Philadelphia means brotherly love. Jesus selected that church to describe the kind of church age that was initiated around the year 1750 and will continue to the tribulation. Just as Sardis came out of Thyatira, to Thyatira, so Philadelphia came out of Sardis. Philadelphia was marked by vitality of life. In this church, God worked in a thrilling way that produced revivals in Europe and the British Isles, which in turn produced what is known today as the modern missionary movement. We all want to belong to this one. No condemnation, right doctrine, right living going hand in hand. Doctrine without love is legalism. And where love is present without doctrine, it's humanism. It's not sloppy agape. God promised to open doors for this loving church, to give it an opportunity to reach out to a lost world. It's the Holy Spirit who prepares the hearts of men to receive the good news, not our plans, tracts, crusades or feeble witnessing. They were commended because they couldn't do it. They had little strength and they knew it. They were completely dependent on Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Except for some churches in America, the Philadelphia church age is characterized by small congregations which according to human standards are weak. 
This, of course, is real strength. They kept his word. This church not only believed the word of God, but obeyed it. The Reformation churches, past and present, believe the word of God, but are not characterized by obedience to it. The Church of Philadelphia, a fitting contrast to this pattern, is characterized by obedience to his word. And the promises... So the Church of Philadelphia was a fitting contrast to the pattern and it was characterized by obedience to his word. And the promises to the church were vindication, he would do it, preservation, since you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. And the world has never known a universal period of tribulation. And this passage is an obvious reference to the seven years tribulation period. But the promise is that the church of Philadelphia, brotherly love, will be raptured or caught away before that tribulation begins. So we just finally have a look at the church at Laodicea now in uh, Revelation 3, 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. The reason he uses that is that Laodicea all the time had lukewarm water coming through. They had a problem bringing their water supply in. Um, and uh, Laodicea had hot springs, so often the water was lukewarm. And all the time it was lukewarm. And because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The lukewarm church, so because you're lukewarm, so because you say I'm rich, but you don't realize where you are. The final church mentioned in Revelation is the lukewarm church of Laodicea. The church which received the last letter from the postman at Patmos was outwardly impressive. It held all the trappings of wealth, but something was missing. The Laodicean church was a half-hearted church. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 21st century church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. The Laodicean church today would be at the forefront of the gay rights movement, multi-faith, ordination of women and the feminizing of the deity, the God is female lobby.
So now we're just going to have a look at the views regarding the rapture of the church and the millennium because if we're going to come down on one side we need to know what the other sides are. And there are many opinions about the book of Revelation and the Lord's return but I'm going to look at the three main views. These are the three you will most likely come across and you'll be able to pick up where your church leaders stand uh, in regard to the second coming and to the rapture. The amillennial view. This view teaches that there is no separate millennium or golden age. We the church are the new Israel and this is what is known as replacement theology. The Jewish people cannot expect any restoration because God's finished with them. All the Old Testament prophecies relating to the coming king and his reign refer to the church which started at Pentecost and will finish when Jesus returns. We are in the full kingdom of Christ now. If pushed to explain their position, they may say we're in the millennium, or conversely, we are in the tribulation. I've heard both. And after this, there will simply be final judgment, followed by heaven and hell. Jesus' return is a long way off. It's way out there. And there's no urgency, because we can't know when he's coming back. Because he said, nobody knows the day or the hour. So the next event on their calendar is the second advent of Jesus. That's the amillennial view. The postmillennial view, this view teaches that there is a future golden age, but that Jesus will not return until after it arrives. It will come about through the activity of the church. The church will become more and more influential in world affairs through the increasing power of the Holy Spirit. It will not happen through Israel. Any revival of Jewish fortunes will be accidental. The Old Testament references are to be understood spiritually as referring to the church and its influence, not to Israel and her king. Again, it's replacement theology. The church is the spiritual Israel. The post-millennial view has had a great revival under charismatic teaching and it's often known as restoration teaching. Groups that generally see prophecy in this way, way include Kingdom Now, Word of Faith, Manifest Sons of God, Dominion and latter rain movements. And there's much talk of new power, taking territory, winning nations, worldwide revival, etc. And renewed emphasis on healing, complete wholeness and spiritual authority underlies this movement because it's believed we are moving in to the fullness of the kingdom now. And we will bring it in. When the church has done the job, Jesus can come back. That's the philosophy behind it. I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions about that one. And the next event on their calendar is the second advent of Jesus. Same as the one before. No rapture. The premillennial view. This teaches that the golden age or millennium is a literal period of 1,000 years which will follow the Lord's second advent. He will establish his worldwide reign from Jerusalem, occupying David's throne and fulfilling Jewish messianic hopes. The church age, which began at Pentecost, comes to an end amid catastrophic deterioration in world affairs, socially, politically, economically and environmentally. There will be clear signs of the approaching end, principally involving Israel and the return of the Jews to Israel. The seven years before the Lord's return are known as the tribulation period, with the last three and a half years being known as the great tribulation. 
During the tribulation, a political leader referred to in scripture as the Antichrist <coughs> will arise to dominate world affairs. Pre-millennialists differ as to the timing of the rapture. Some believe it will happen before the tribulation, pre-trib, that's me. Some believe it will happen at the midpoint before the great tribulation, that's halfway through, and they're called mid-tribulationists. Some believe it will happen at the same time as the Lord's physical return. So it's the up-down theory. They've got some questions to answer those, but there we are. Because if it's that, there'll be nobody left to repopulate the earth, but never mind. Whatever the view the premillennialists take as to the timing of the rapture, they clearly distinguish between the Lord's coming for his church, the rapture, and his second advent. So two distinct events there. The catching away or the second, second advent. And often you'll speak to people and they will call it the same thing. They will call the second advent the rapture or the rapture the second advent. Or most people think the next thing on the calendar is actually the second advent. Um, but of the second advent, he returns to earth with power and great glory like that banner. There are the flames coming out of the nose of that horse. So that's Matthew 24, 30 and 31. And the next event on their calendar, on my calendar, is the rapture or catching away of the church. That's a very brief outline of belief systems. And certain denominations follow certain ideas because they naturally get taught and so that's where they go. So there are the three main views. As I said before, I'm a pre-tribulation millennialist. I believe the church will be physically removed from the earth before the period known as the Great Tribulation. That doesn't mean I don't think we're going through a great deal of uh, hotting up before we get there. This is substantiated by the way God has dealt with the believer and the unbeliever in the past. That during this time of tribulation on earth, we will be having our wedding breakfast in heaven. Because Jesus was and is a Jew. And that's what he was talking about when he said, if I go, I will come again and take you to myself. That's John 14.3. I believe we will subsequently return with him at the second advent, which is what the banner shows there. When he comes in great power and glory and judges between the sheep and the goats, believers and the unbelievers, who come through the great tribulation. Matthew 25.32. And we will reign and rule with him on a renewed earth for a thousand years, which is the millennium. So the time that we are here is our training for reigning. That is our purpose right now. We've got a purpose as individuals. We have destiny held out before us, an, an inheritance now and then. But the whole thing is focused on Jesus and his plans for our lives, not our own. As far as I can see, no other theory stands up when examined in the light of the scriptures. And for this reason, my teaching is one of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus to catch his bride away. So we need to be ready with our bags packed, wise virgins that we are. And to substantiate this view, I want to talk now about the Jewish wedding ceremony. And I'm only briefly going into this because it is such a beautiful thing. Um, and the rapture of the church. A friend of ours coming to stay for the um, school, summer school. Um, she went to Amsterdam recently. I don't know who was teaching, but he was teaching on the Jewish wedding ceremony and catching away at the church. 
Oh, she said, you're going to think it's wonderful. I said, I'm teaching on that on Thudley. <laughs> so she's got me the tape, so I'm in for a treat because there'll be some more stuff on there, I don't doubt. Um, but we must first understand the Jewish wedding system, which was common in Jesus' day and also common among Jews up until the last generation. And the Jewish marriage system had four distinct stages, all of which are to be found in the relationship of the church as the bride of Christ. The first one is that the father of the groom makes arrangements for the bride, the father, and pays the bride price. The first stage may happen before the children are born or when they're very young or perhaps even a few short weeks prior to the marriage. But a long period of time could transpire between the first and the second stage and often the bride and groom do not see each other until their wedding day. Eventually comes the second stage, which is known as the fetching of the bride. In this second stage, the groom will come to the home of the bride in order to fetch her and bring her to his home. This is often done in accompaniment with a wedding procession. Then comes the third stage, which is the marriage ceremony, followed by the fourth stage, the marriage supper or feast. So when a young man desired to marry a young woman in ancient Israel, he'd prepare a contract or a covenant to present to the young woman and her father at the young woman's home. And this contract showed his willingness to provide for her and described the terms under which he would propose marriage. And the most important part of the contract was the bride price. The price that the young man was willing to pay to marry the young woman. Do you remember when... Um, the servant was sent to get a, a wife for uh, Isaac, I think it was. Took all sorts of gifts. That was a bride price. And this payment was to be made to the young woman's father in exchange for his permission to marry her. And it was generally quite high because sons were considered to be more valuable than daughters since they were physically more able to share in the work. Um, and the bride price compensated the young woman's family for the cost to raise a daughter and also indicated the love that the young man had for the young woman. The young woman was very valuable to the young man. He would go to the young woman's house with the contract and present his offer to the young woman and her father. And of course Jesus, didn't he, came to the earth to present his marriage contract. And it's the new covenant and the price he paid was his body, given for us. So that is the bride price. So all four stages of the Jewish wedding system are to be found in the relationship of the church and Christ. And first of all, the father of the groom made the arrangements for the bride and paid the bride price. And in this case, the price was the blood of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. So the first stage is already completed, but the other three stages are yet future. When I read just now about the young man, that was taken from ancient wedding practice. So it differs slightly from the teaching I'm giving you now about the father of the groom actually choosing the bride. There was a prophetic song um, some years ago, um, one of the big conferences, the summer conferences, and this girl suddenly sang about the father seeking a bride for the son. And he's been gathering, gathering, gathering. 
the bride from every tribe and nation, one who will love him, one who will honour him. It's absolutely beautiful, just a short prophetic song. But you see, the father is doing the gathering. The father is, is, is getting the bride for his son. But the price, of course, is Jesus. So the second stage is the fetching of the bride. And even as a long period of time can transpire between the first and second stages in the Jewish system, even so it's been with us today. There's been over 2,000 years since the first stage was accomplished. But someday the second stage will take place when Jesus will come in order to fetch the bride to his home. And this fetching of the bride is referred to today as the rapture or catching away of the church. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Thessalonians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Timothy. Thirteen to eighteen. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. The word sleep here means death, and it's the body that sleeps. The soul doesn't. The soul goes on, as you'll remember from the body, soul, spirit, and the, what happens when a person dies. Um, for the Lord himself, verse 16, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He's talking to the Thessalonians who thought that this had all happened and they were going into disarray. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. <coughs> Behold, I tell you a mystery. <coughs> Excuse me. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Twinkling of an eye. Got to be ready for it. When Joyce and I were moving from uh, Paddockwood to Five Oak Green ten years ago now, I kept seeing trumpeters coming through the ceiling. They were like angels hanging down with these long trumpets hanging out. And I'm thinking, what's that all about? They go, what's that? And uh, of course, when they used to break camp, when the cloud was moving, they sounded the shofar or the trumpet. And God was saying, break camp, we're moving. So I saw the trumpeters. And again, the trumpet will sound, last trump, and up we go. Could happen now. I won't hold my breath. So Paul expected Jesus to come for his bride in his day, so how much more? Should we be expectant and make ourselves ready now? Thus, with the catching away of the church to be with Jesus sometime before the beginning of the tribulation, the second stage of the wedding ceremony will be completed. You know, Pan Am Airways, I don't know if they're still like this, would not have two born-again pilots in the cockpit together. Because though they didn't believe in the rapture of the church, they just in case 
this great thing is through up flying through it gone. Uh, so just interesting how so-called unbelievers are just a little bit wary in case it could be the case. So I say, I don't know if they still do. So the third stage, the wedding ceremony, the marriage ceremony, will take place in heaven just prior to the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. And this is described in Revelation 19. I bet you wonder when we were going to get in there. Six to eight. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. One of the things we're going to be doing at the summer school next week is meditating on these sort of attributes of God, his omnipotence, his immutability, his omniscience. Gets you into the size of him, he's big, as Graham says to me in his latest thing, you're big, you're really big, you're big got to get he's big big let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints Derek Prince spoke about this once about the righteous acts of the saints he said I do not want to be wearing a skirt that's up over my buttocks he said, I want to have done my righteous acts so that I'm clothed. <laughs> Another reason to walk in the will of God for your life. I said, you don't want to be like those in the Old Testament where they took them captive, David's men, didn't they? And they shaved half their beard off and chopped the thing of me off. At the... And it was such a humiliation for them. We don't want to be um, cheeky bride, do we? <laughs> we want everything covered, don't we? What are we covered, we do? We want our righteous acts. Uh, so the righteous acts, the bridal gown is said to be the righteous acts of the saints. I mean, Derek Prince, he stands you up by your ears. He doesn't mess around with it. First, it shows that the process of sanctification will indeed be completed, for all that will be showing on the bride on, are her righteous acts. And secondly, this shows that the marriage ceremony takes place after the judgment seat of Christ, when the saints are rewarded for their deeds on the earth. Need to look at this one, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. This is where you can say, I am definitely not going to be standing before the great white throne. This is the only judgment seat you will ever stand in front of. I personally would like to have the opportunity, I was sharing it at lunchtime, of speaking to some leaders of churches that are into dead works. Um, because I want to see them have a reward on that day. And this is 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. 
If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. That says that we're going to come one day before the Bema seat, which was a seat in Roman, um, the Roman times, slightly raised platform, where you went to get your reward when you'd won your marathon and you got your wreath and your little scroll and that was your prize. We will all stand before Jesus with this, with either our bags of wood, hay and stubble or our little bag of jewels. The fellow in front of you might have these huge things. And he comes up to the fire and Jesus says, pop it on there. Poof. Ashes. A lot of churches are following their own programs, bless them. And they're taking their people with them. And the reason that I'd like to talk to them is to show them this passage that they need to be hearing what the Holy Spirit is doing and following what he's doing. Because the time has gone where the, ch where the church has been blessed in its own activities. We're in a new season and God is saying, twice I had to prophesy over someone recently, in times past God has walked with you and blessed you. But now he is calling you into bridal partnership with him, which means you walk with him doing the things he's doing, watching what he's doing, because that is the season we're in. There's a season of shift. Um, from Lord, we're going to do this, please bless it, we do it every year. Not anymore. And he's blowing on things. Um, we need to know when things get blown on, why they're disappearing, and because it's his kindness, because he wants us to have a reward. So after the marriage ceremony, we come to the fourth stage, the marriage feast, described in Revelation 19, 19. If we have a look at that. So here we are, dressed in our robes, because we've got them, because our works have been tested, and we're all covered nicely. 19, 9, sorry, not 19, 19. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And the next verse, and I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you do not do that, I'm your fellow servant. And uh, Derek Brown was so funny, wasn't he? He said, this angel falls down at John's feet, and John says, not me, him. That's <laughs> the way he said it, wasn't it? So don't ever get your eyes on people. Since many are called to the marriage feast, this passage seems to indicate that the marriage supper or feast will be at a different place than the marriage ceremony. And we know that the Old Testament saints are resurrected, not with the church before the tribulation, but at the end of the tribulation. And we see that in Daniel 12 too. We were in there a little while ago. John the Baptist, who was the last of the Old Testament prophets, called himself a friend of the bridegroom and didn't consider himself to be a member of the bride of Christ, the church. And you find that in John 3, 27 to 30. So it seems that the ones who are bidden to attend the marriage supper are all Old Testament saints resurrected after the second coming of Jesus on earth. In fact, it would seem possible that the marriage supper is what begins the millennium or the messianic age. So we might all come back like this and then have this huge feast. Our thousand years of co-reigning with Christ will start with a tremendous marriage feast. And with the marriage feast, all four stages will be completed. 
The final picture we get of the bride of Christ is contained in the closing chapters of the Bible itself in Revelation 21.9. Come now, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like a most precious stone, like jasper stone, as clear as crystal. There was a time when we were all gathered together at uh, Fieldview and we were all standing up praying and suddenly I saw everybody in the spirit as being like a pillar of crystal. And there were different heights and even the little pillars would like different heights. But the colours are indescribable, absolutely beautiful, living stones. Absolutely living stones. So in this passage, we're told that as a result of the four earlier stages, the bride is now the married wife. And then in the following verses, chapter 21, 10 uh, to 22, 5, we have a graphic description of the glorious eternal wife of Christ in her eternal abode. Now, perhaps we can see that only as we look at the Bible from a Jewish perspective and see that the wedding is a picture of a covenant, can we begin to understand its mysteries? I hope to be able to teach a bit on covenants uh, in the next season. That is something else again. Because we don't understand them in, the, well I don't, in, in the culture in which we live. But the Old Testament culture, the culture of a covenant was, was my life for your life. Absolutely incredible. Here's my, my armour, your armour. Where you go, I go. If you die, I die. Covenant really... Uh, Paul, John and the Apostles would have written of things totally familiar to their culture. And the people of ancient Israel understood what Jesus was going to do because they understood the model of the wedding. It's only when we Gentiles overlay our understanding of culture on the world, word that mistakes occur to our cost. And does this explain Jesus' uh, words, the first will be last and the last first? Israel was first and they will be last to be joined to him. And we are the last and we'll be first to be joined to him. It was just a thought that I had while I was doing this. And just one other point I wanted to make, that when the bride... Um, oh, that's lovely. Well, there's, a, a, there's a CD by Ruth Fussell uh, where they go through the ceremony of the cup. Here's my cup. And, and if, the, if the bride price was agreeable to the young woman's father and the young man uh, would pour a glass of wine for the young woman and in taking that and drinking it, she would indicate her acceptance of his, pro his um, proposal. Um, so here we have the communion cup, don't we? Uh, while she was getting ready, one of the things that she would do... Uh, now, I have to tell you this bit, which you probably know already. He would also give her gifts. He would present the bride with special gifts, and the purpose of these gifts was to show the bridegroom's appreciation of the bride, and they were intended to help her to remember him during the long betrothal period. We know the gifts he's given us, gifts of the Spirit. And then the bride would partake of a mikvah, or cleansing bath and it's the same word as is used for baptism and to this day in conservative Judaism a bride can't marry 
without her mikvah. So a part of our preparation is making ourselves clean, getting ourselves clean and ready for when he comes for us. It's all so pictorial and beautiful, isn't it? It just ties all in. And then finally, the glorious appearing or parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This is Matthew 24, 27 to 31. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to another. It's this lovely banner. The horse with the flames coming out of his nostrils and the armies of the Lord following behind. I was at a conference, Graham Cooks, and they, they go into worship real good and we had one evening where we had about three hours of worship where just worship was coming and going like a rolling in and I had a vision of I was underneath and there were all these these horses coming first one way with the people on and then the other way and it was the armies of heaven they were just coming across above me absolutely brilliant so Matthew 24, 27 to 31, this prediction concerns his glorious appearing and is taken from the Olivet Discourse. All attention will be focused on him. All those living at that time on earth who have come through the time of great tribulation will see the risen Christ in all his glory. The lady apparently had the vision of this that the banner was made from, couldn't see Jesus, she could only see the horse's head and the brilliance of the light around him. The nations will mourn because they've not prepared themselves for that day, the day of the Lord. You remember we started when I said that day, the day, the day of the Lord. It will be too late because he will separate them. Those who not be, do not believe will be removed and go to the unseen state to await the great white throne judgment. The believers will remain to repopulate the renewed earth. Not us, however. We shall be in our glorified bodies. No more marriage or babies for us. So we'll all be able to go anywhere. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. You know, my favorite title for, for the Lord is, is uh, Yahweh Sabaoth, which is the Lord of Sabaoth, which is the Lord of hosts. It's only mentioned a few times, but it's the Lord of hosts, Lord of Sabaoth. He's, he's a warrior king. He likes a fight. He's not afraid of it. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. Remember he was sitting there telling the boys? Forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. That is Zechariah 14, 3 to 5. So here we are, at the end, or is it the beginning of our trip through Revelation? The revealing of the glorious King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who is the lover of our souls. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And we stand on tiptoe to see the fulfilment of God's eternal plan coming to culmination and fruition in the glorious appearing of our Lord and Saviour and the establishment of his literal kingdom here on earth. He told me just recently, you stand on the threshold of the culmination of the church age. He's told me that we're standing tiptoe. On, we're just on tiptoe on the edge of it. And the kingdom, this kingdom has both an inward and outward expression. We're teaching on that next week. Jesus said the kingdom is neither low here nor low there. The kingdom is within you. In us, it's the reign and rule of the spirit of Jesus in our innermost man. Externally, we look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of the king. That's Titus 2.13. And they're actually crowns, you know. And there's one for those who eagerly await his coming. We just have a look at this one because I love it. 2 Timothy 4.8. I'm planning on getting one of these. Am I loving them? This is Paul at the end of his ministry. I've fought a good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. There it is again, capital day, capital D. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So you don't get a crown of righteousness if you're looking for and hastening the coming of the Lord if you're really eager to see him because that's who you want to be spending the rest of your life with. There are other crowns too. There's a crown of rejoicing, 1 Thessalonians 2.19. Crown of life, James 1.12. Crown of glory, 1 Peter 5.4. And an imperishable crown, 1 Corinthians 9.25. I think in that he's talking about running the race and they run it, uh, the, the um, what do you call it, the marathon that they run in, in Greece, they used to run, didn't they, where they stripped down to absolutely nothing and got, they were oiled in order to make them go faster. And, you know, people would roll things on the, to try to, they roll balls of gold in front of the runners to try to stop them. Don't forget, Satan will try to roll a ball of gold in front of you to try to stop you. Because when they bent down to pick it up and tried to carry it, they couldn't run so fast. So they, these were all the things they tried to do. It's called putting a stumbling block. <laughs> but they, those were the things they tried to do to stop them winning the race. Because, of course, they're all betting, I expect, on who was going to win it. Um... Uh, but they got an imperishable crown. Uh, Roger Price is funny about this on one of his tapes. It's a crown of, of uh, a wreath of leaves, you know. An owl in the wall, he says. <laughs> Can't remember what it all is. But we're not. We're going for imperishable crowns. So, as I've just said, reviewing what we've seen so far in the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ, we see that we stand on the edge of the culmination of the church age, the culmination of Jewish history and the history of the world itself. Everything's rolling up. All the actors are in the wings, waiting for the final act to commence. For us, as believers, the time scale is the catching away or the rapture of the church and our wedding breakfast in heaven during the seven years of Jacob's trouble then our return to earth with him at his glorious appearing. 
We're blessed indeed if we can say, I'm ready. Part of this ministry, if not all, is to prepare the bride for a bridegroom and you'll always hear me banging on about the bridegroom. Sometimes I think the church is so consumed with herself that she forgets what she's here for and who she's here for. Certainly the doctrine of imminency, as it's called, is rarely preached, much less taught. But the early believers had an urgency about his return. And in the two letters to the Thessalonians, written in AD 51, about 18 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul urges them not to lose sight of Jesus' imminent return. And that's 1 Thessalonians, we looked at it already, 2.19, at his coming. 1 Thessalonians 3.13, at the coming. And in chapter 4, 15 to 18, he gets specific and goes on to urge them to holy living while they wait. In chapter 5.23, there's an expectation, and his second letter is similar. Now he's dealing in 2 Thessalonians 1.10 with rumours, as I said before, that the day of the Lord has already come. So he explains what must take place first, because they were having a wobble on. And the Thessalonians had now down tools because they thought it was so convinced, they were so convinced the imminent return of Jesus was coming, they didn't need to work. So he's having to say, no lads, you don't stop normal life. Uh, so the doctrine of the soon coming requires a balance between waiting and working. But your eyes have always of your heart to be upwards, waiting. No one can know what our glorified Lord will look like, but we do have some clues. In Revelation 1, 12 to 16, we just get a little glimpse. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and in the King James, girded about the paps with a gold band. That's it, isn't it? King James girded about the paps. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like flames of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice the sound of many waters. He had in his hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. What's his reaction? Oh, hello, Jesus, I've been weak. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Sun full on. We can't look at that. And what's his reaction? He falls as one dead. And so did Daniel. You, you look at the men in the Bible, they fell as one dead. We're not talking about our mate next door. This speaks of unspeakable glory. Brilliance too great to behold or stand in the presence of. And this is our king. This is our bridegroom. One of the prophets says, I keep looking for this actually. Who would not fear thee, O Lord, King of the ages? I am going to find that scripture. I was searching for it this morning and I haven't found it yet. And in Revelation 20, verse 11, we see earth and heaven flee away from his face. We need to know whose we are. This is our God. This is our God. Jesus said only his Father knew the day and the hour. And we've seen that those left behind will have seven years to come to their senses. 
Jesus also said it will come upon you like travail to a woman in childbirth. Ladies, we know once that process starts, there ain't no stopping it, is there? The baby's going to be born. So he told us to look for signs of the end. Wars, rumours of wars, earthquakes. He also said, know this, when the fig tree puts forth its leaves, Luke 21, 29 to 33, when Israel, who is the fig tree, is back in the land, that's the sign. It's the easiest thing to become lukewarm and we are urged to keep our spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Satan leaves you alone until you change sides. Once you do, the fight is on to discredit you and get you back into his territory. So what are our instructions while we wait for our bridegroom? Titus 2, 12 and 13 shows us. Timothy, Timothy, Titus. Finish with this. Titus 2, 12 and 13. 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's how we should live, folks. Soberly, righteously and godly. does not mean that you don't have any fun and laughter, but it means that your lives are clean. They are clean. We don't get involved in what the world does. Eagerly await his coming. And 1 Corinthians 1.7 Keep in mind you will be like him when he comes. That's Colossians 3.4 And press on towards the mark for the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. That's Paul again and his running. Philippians 3.14 Beloved, time is short. Live as though he were coming today with expectancy and joy that when he comes, his reward will be with him. That's Revelation 22:12. Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. God bless you and thank you for listening. Thank you.